0: Welcome to another look into the life and message of Elizabeth Elliot, as she called us to live to a higher standard each day, not satisfied with just a little religion, when that's just a shallow substitute for giving God our best and knowing him. Well, as this podcast series continues in the coming weeks, we'll hear from family, friends, and others who were influenced by Elizabeth's life and message. Today we continue our extended series on Operation Alka and other events during Elizabeth's time in Ecuador. Today we have two Gateway to Joy programs, One Step at a Time, and About Five Missionary Wives. Those programs originally aired in January of 1989. We'll be hearing on this podcast from Valerie. A quick thought from Valerie Elliott Shepard, Jim and Elizabeth's daughter on the idea of what if Jim did not come back. And also, uh, coming up later, Barbara Rioch. For years, she followed Elizabeth's writing, legacy, and ministry, even so far as going to Ecuador to see the home and place where Elizabeth's missionary work began. She's been a Bible study leader, has lived and ministered in South Africa, has admired and respected Elizabeth, She'll talk about going to the jungle station in the kitchen where five wives gathered after the death of their husbands at the hands of the Alcas. Don't miss that. First, though, it's Gateway to Joy 91, one step at a time. It's about new ideas, but also about uncertainty, about taking life one step at a time about that biblical principle that His Word is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. What's the similarity of a country's nuclear deterrent with making contact with the AUKUS? Well, stay tuned and hear about that.
1: You are loved with an everlasting love. That's what the Bible says. And underneath are the everlasting arms. This is your friend Elizabeth Elliott talking with you this time about... One step at a time. Each time they got together to plan the next step of Operation Alka, there were new ideas, new things to pray about. God did not give them a blueprint, it was one step at a time. We've thought a little bit about how each of us has a story. God is the one who's writing that story, and He knows exactly what's going to be in every chapter and how it's going to end. You and I don't know anything about what's going to happen in the next minute. We only have one step at a time. You're where you are and I'm sitting in a studio where I am right now talking to you. It's one step at a time. And as we're looking at the story of five American missionaries who wanted to reach a people called the Alcas with the gospel They could only take one step at a time. Obedience to God is one step at a time. I'm told that in olden days, in the Holy Land, a tiny clay lamp was sometimes attached to the thong of a sandal, so that as a man walked, there was just enough light cast by that tiny lamp for him to take the next step. I think that's the way it very often is with God's leading. His word is a lamp, unto our feet. As we take that one step, then God gives us the light for the next one. Obedience is the key. Well, the men were dropping gifts from a small plane to these people, hoping that the gifts would convince the savages of the friendship of the white man. One day, a Kichwa fishing party was down on the Curarai River, which is on the border of Alca territory, And they knew that the missionaries were dropping gifts to the Alcas in that area, and they realized that no gifts were likely to be dropped to them as long as the people in the airplane thought that they were quichuas. And so smart guys that they were, they stripped off all their clothes, grabbed sticks, went out onto the sand strip, and waved at the plane, hoping that the pilot would think that these were Alcas down there, since they were wearing no clothes. Then Ed McCauley, who was sharing these flights with Nate, wrote in his diary, it's time we were getting closer to them on the ground. And then to Jim, he wrote this, I've been giving the trip some thought, and I feel this way. We should set a definite limit on the number of days we will wait on the curerai for them, and if they don't show, we should be ready to go in to them. I should tell you that the decision had been made to set up a camp on a little beach on the Kodurai River, and Ed was not feeling that they should wait indefinitely at the camp before they actually went to the Alka settlement. He goes on, For myself, I am definitely ready to go in and feel that it would be reasonably safe if we can ever use that term in our initial ground contact with these people. We should go in, one, wearing the headdresses meaning the headdresses made out of feathers which the Alcas had given to the men by means of the bucket drop. Number two, carrying small airplanes such as I have hanging here, meaning some little balsa models of planes which matched the plane that had been making the gift drop so that when the Alcas saw the missionaries on the ground, they would associate these small planes with the one that dropped gifts. Number three, carrying gifts, wrapped as we have been wrapping them, again for identification with the same group. Number four, shouting, ponimupa," auka for I like you, or other phrases that we are making familiar from the plane. God being with us, and up to this point we have every confidence that he is, I think this would put us in. The whole project is moving faster than we had originally dared to hope, and while I'm not forgetting ahead of God, I feel that we shouldn't lag. One of the areas of serious and prolonged discussion was the matter of firearms. Should the men bear arms in order to protect themselves? I remember Nate saying that the first shot fired would signal the failure of the entire project and the scuttling of any hopes for the future. But that didn't mean that the presence of arms might not perhaps be a deterrent I find the present-day discussions of nuclear arms as a deterrent to be very interesting, looking at it from the perspective of our experience with the Alka Indians. Our discussions about whether to take firearms or not always depended upon an assumption that the Alkas themselves would respond as we ourselves might respond. But, of course, we were dealing with people whose minds we could not read, When we speak of nuclear armament and countries with which we might be at war, we are assuming that they would respond as we might respond, and of course, we know nothing of the kind. So round and round went the discussions. Two of the men felt that they would never bear arms. They were conscientious objectors. Three of the men felt, on the other hand, that it was legitimate indeed, under certain circumstances, for Christians to be armed. But none of the five felt that they would ever want to have to shoot anyone. They hoped that the mere presence of the weapons would be sufficient to give the Alkas pause. So it was decided that those who wished to bear arms would have them available, but certainly keep them hidden until worse came to worst, and they might have to let the people know that they had them. Alkas knew what guns were because... Quichuas hunt with guns, and some Quichuas who had been hunting with guns had been killed by Alcas in former years. So on one of Nate's flights, he dropped paint pigment on the sand of a sand strip that he found on the Kododai River. He dropped these paint pigment packages at seven second intervals at 65 miles an hour, which enabled him to measure off that the length of that natural sand strip was between 190 and 210 yards, just barely enough for him to land his small plane. Then on one of his sweeps down, he actually touched the wheels lightly to the sand, discovered that it was gravel, and it was smooth. His next idea was that they should have a prefabricated house. Jim had some power equipment back at our station in Shandia, so he volunteered to prefabricate the house, cut the pieces, and Nate figured out a way that he could strap those pieces underneath the plane and fly them in little by little, and the men could then build a tree house, which would give them a measure of safety during the night. One day when they were flying over, they thought they saw a man with a lance near an Alka house but on their next swoop over, the lance was no longer in sight. Perhaps he was just going hunting, and he didn't want the missionaries to feel that he was threatening them in any way. Then the plan was that they would set up their camp, put the treehouse up, and commit five days to waiting for the Alcas to come to them. They would have supplies for two weeks in the treehouse, just in case there was a flood, so that they were not able to fly the plane in or out, and the possibility was always in the back of their minds that there might be a siege. The next step was to drop photographs of themselves, which they had enlarged to almost life-size of their faces, so that when the Alcas met them face-to-face on the ground, they might recognize the faces that they had seen in the airplane. Does this seem incredible to you? Well, Nate was such a skilled flyer that he was able to fly low enough so that they could not only see the faces of the Alcas, but it, they were sure that the Alcas were able to see their faces as well. One day they received in the bucket, which Nate had lowered to the Alcas, a bird with a half-eaten banana. Then one day, when Mary Lou was in her station in Otahuno, Fermin, a Kichwa Indian, came running in. He said, Alcas have been on the path. And she said, Did you see them? No, he said, but I saw some more footprints. He said, I've got my gun here. I'm going to go out after them, but I don't have any powder. Give me some powder. Well, Mary Lou had gunpowder in the little store that they ran for the Indians, but she refused to give him any. And she took her own machete and went out on the trail calling for the Aukas. Mary Lou McCulley was at this point seven months pregnant. She was the mother of two little boys. But there was no question in her mind but that God was in Operation Alca. And any part that she might have, she wanted to to take without fear. So she went out calling out these friendly phrases, Come, come and see us, we are your friends. Later on, the men dropped beef, chocolate, manioc, cookies, candy, and beads. Each time they got together to plan the next step of Operation Alka, there were new ideas, new things to pray about, God did not give them a blueprint. It was one step at a time. The wisdom that he gave them, the circumstances, the weather, the way things were working, the little encouragements that they received from the friendly gifts that the Alcas gave them, all of these things worked together to convince the men that the time for Operation Alca was drawing very close. They thought of the word in the psalm that says, as thou goest, step by step, I will open up the way before thee. Follow the shepherd, look at the facts, study them, pray, counsel, use your head, plan carefully, do the next thing. Maybe you still feel confused about some major decision that you have to make, something that looks so complicated. Just do one thing, the one simple thing that you can do now. And don't be afraid.
0: That was Gateway to Joy, Program 91, originally aired in 1989, one step at a time. Well, as I mentioned, we're going to hear from Jim and Elizabeth's daughter, Valerie, as she uh, has a quick comment on what Jim thought about the fact that he might not come back alive from this contact with the Alcas.
2: As my mother carried on the missionary work with the Quichuas, do you know what she said to my father as he left to go to the Alcas? She said, what will I do if you don't come back? And he said, teach the believers, darling, teach the believers. She, she did that the rest of her life.
0: Valerie Elliot Shepherd with a quick thought there for us. Later on, we'll be hearing from Barbara Rioch, Bible study leader, missionary, and admirer of Elizabeth. Stay tuned. Right now, Gateway to Joy 92. It's called About Five Missionary Wives. Think about the ones left behind after this tragic death. Was there fear in their hearts? What was going through the minds of Elizabeth, Mary Lou, Barbara, Marge, and Olive as they thought about their loved ones who had been killed? Were they eager for Operation Alka?
1: Well, I have to confess, we wives were anxious. And yet, in spite of our fears, in spite of our anxieties, our answer had to be yes. Yes, Lord. We have to go out. We don't have to come back. I've been telling you about five missionary men, Jim, Ed, Pete, Raj, and Nate, and maybe you'd like to hear a little bit about what was going through the heads of Mary Lou and Marge and Barbara and Olive and me. We were as eager for Operation Alka in our way as the men were for their way we probably had a few more reservations and hesitations than the men did. And yet at the same time, I don't think there was any doubt in the minds of any of us that God was in this thing. Since we had been called to be missionaries as much as our husbands had, we couldn't even consider standing in the way of the men who wanted to take the gospel to the Alka Indians. There were many discussions as to the details of Operation Alka as the time came for the countdown. Jim wrote in his diary, I am ready to die for the salvation of the Alkas. And he said that to me. We spent many evenings talking about what was going to happen. What would I do if he didn't come back? And he was very casual about the whole thing. He just said, if it comes to that, I just want you to know that I'm ready to die for the salvation of the Alcas." I thought back to the words that he had written in his diary when he was 22 years old. He was now 28. These are his words. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Mary Lou said to some of us, There is something for each couple to decide. Let's not pressure each other. Each husband and wife must come to their own decision about whether this is something in which they should participate. Olive, Pete Fleming's wife, referred to his diary in which he had written that he was willing to give his life. There was one occasion when they felt that they saw fear in the eyes of the Alcas on the ground. Was their attitude changing should this mean a change in the plan? On December 23rd, when the Elliots and the Flemings had gone to Arajuno to spend Christmas with the McCulleys, Nate flew Jim over the Alka settlement. He saw the same old man that they had noticed before standing in a clearing, and they swooped down past him, no more than fifty feet above the ground. Wow, Jim said, that guy is scared stiff. Nate agreed. It's as though they had steeled themselves against doing anything that would express either fear or hostility, he wrote later, possibly afraid that they might scare away the chicken that lays the golden eggs. But their eyes don't lie. They're full of terror. Understandable, though, the expression is that of a six-year-old in the front row when the circus clown points a big gun right in his face. He's sure it's all in fun, but, oh, brother! The next time they received a gift from the Alcas via the bucket drop, The contents were these, a cooked fish, two or three little packets of peanuts, a couple of pieces of cooked manioc, a cooked plantain, two squirrels, very apparently killed by the hard fall, one parrot, alive but a bit nervous, two bananas in with the parrot, two pieces of pottery, clay, busted to bits in the fall, and a piece of cooked meat and a smoked monkey tail. This is by far the most all-out effort at a fair trade arrangement on the part of the neighbors, Nate wrote. We're all delighted. Jim and Ed sampled the meat, and we all ate some of the peanuts. Then, meaning no ill to the kind folks who mailed all those goodies to us, we sat down and ate the meal that Mary Lou had prepared. Rod Judarian was the one who was assigned to draw up a plan of action. December 23rd, there was a discussion between the men and women. Arms would be taken by three of the men. They would be kept hidden, but they would be available in case of desperate need. Raj decided that Jim would build the treehouse. Raj would be in charge of first aid. Ed would be in charge of items for trade. And if Pete decided to go, which he had not quite done so far he was going to be the one who would fly out with Nate and spend the night in Arahuno. Then there were to be code signs drawn in the sand and maps so that messages could be given to the pilot as he flew over the beach, if necessary, or for any people who might be coming for a rescue operation. The language materials which Jim and I had gathered were to be memorized by each man. We wives, again discussed our part. The decision had been made years before for each of us that Jesus Christ was Lord. When we married our husbands, it was perfectly clear that Jesus would be first in our marriage. He would be Lord. Our marriages would be under His authority and for His glory. There was a sense now of compulsion, that we had to reach the Alcas one way or another. There was no question about this, and there was also a deep sense of the possible cost. We were not naive. We knew that everyone who had ever gone into Alca territory had not appeared again. There were people who had gone in looking for oil and rubber and gold in the 19th century, and none had ever come back. Since that time, there had never been a friendly contact of any sort. One missionary and a Norwegian explorer had gone down a river in Alka territory on a raft and had been turned back by spears which reached the raft but didn't touch any of the men. There had been no signs of the Alkas themselves, they having hidden themselves in the jungle. But we knew what the possibilities were. We trusted God... We believed that he keeps us from all evil. He keeps us from harm. But that must be defined according to the scriptures. God did allow people to be killed. God did allow Stephen to be stoned to death. He allowed John the Baptist to be beheaded. We had to remember those things. They were all in the same Bible that told about the kind of God we have who is a faithful God and one who represents himself as a shield and defender. Jesus' conditions of discipleship became devastatingly meaningful to us now. He said, if you want to be my disciple, you must give up your right to yourself and take up the cross and follow me. Now, what exactly do we imagine the taking up of the cross means not crucifixion. That isn't a method of execution which is commonly used anymore. Each of us is asked to take up a cross every day. It doesn't mean physical death every day. It means simply the willingness to be inconvenienced for a start. It means the willingness to say no to ourselves. It means holding our own physical safety and comfort very lightly. The willingness to die in ways other than physical. It had to be a transaction with God. Yes, Lord, if this is what you're asking, the results are not our business, they're yours. My present husband, Lars Grinn, and I live on the coast of Massachusetts. And I'm told that in every rescue station of the Coast Guard along the East Coast, this motto is posted. You have to go out, you don't have to come back. Wouldn't that be a great motto for all Christians? You have to go out, you don't have to come back. It's our responsibility to obey, not to reason why, not to guarantee our personal safety before we make that commitment. We make the commitment to one who has promised to hold us, to keep us, to preserve our spirits forever. He whose hands are wounded is the one who holds our safety. You know, I find it easier to trust God for my own safety than I do for my grandchildren. It comes right down to very practical things like that. Are you a grandmother? What do you worry about? God says, don't be anxious about anything. Trust me. Well, I have to confess, we wives were anxious. And yet, in spite of our fears, in spite of our anxieties, our answer had to be yes. Yes, Lord. We have to go out. We don't have to come back.
0: Gateway to Joy 92, originally aired in 1989, About Five Missionary Wives is the title. Well, as I mentioned, we'll be hearing from Barbara Reock next, an admirer of Elizabeth Elliott who actually went to visit the jungle station, the kitchen where the five wives gathered after the deaths of their husbands.
2: I was in Quito for a retreat to support those who worked in the Children's Division of Bible Study Fellowship. And when we were offered the opportunity to visit the Amazon jungle village where Elizabeth Elliott and her co-workers ministered to the Warani people, I really jumped at that chance to go. Well, to reach the jungle, we first drove from Quito to Shell, the mission station where the Elliots and the others had lived. We visited the house where Elizabeth and the other wives had been gathered when they had learned that their husbands had been murdered. And as we stood in the same kitchen where the women heard this shattering news, a current day missionary told us the behind the scenes story. He said the Warani were a people who practiced revenge-killing, that they believed that when someone committed a crime against them, they had the right to kill not only the wrongdoer, but the husbands, wives, children, mothers, fathers, brothers, and sisters. The entire family paid for the perpetrator's offense with their blood. So when the Wurani speared Jim Elliot and the other missionaries, Elizabeth Elliot understood that the people simply were carrying on their normal practice. They had seen the missionaries as a threat and felt it was their duty to kill them. Elizabeth explained that it was the same as when we in America would decorate a man for defending his country.
0: Barbara Rioch, Christian leader and admirer of Elizabeth Elliott. Well, it's about time for our podcast to come to an end once again, but let me thank you for letting us come into your home, your office, wherever we found you today. On behalf of the Elizabeth Elliott Foundation in cooperation with the Bible Broadcasting Network, let me invite you back again next time. And let me invite you to visit us at elizabethelliot.org for a lot of resources helpful in learning more, not just about Jim and Elizabeth, but about many things that were so important to them and to you as well. Until next time, may God remind you daily you are loved with an everlasting love. And underneath are the Everlasting Arms.